Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And we're back. Welcome in. You've made it, everybody. Wait, we're back? We have, we just started. We're back. We're back. (laughs) In fact, open the door, bring everybody in. You've made it. It's safe here. We see you. We hear you. We value you. Uh oh. This is a safe respite in the storm of life. It's let's hear it. Eric, how you doing? You know, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about the future of the planet. How about yourself, Kirk? You know what? I'm very optimistic. I'm decidedly optimistic. And you want to know why? I've had a chance to listen to the interview we're about to get to. And this is interesting. No, no, no. Stop right there. First thing I have to tell you is that I'm sorry. <laughs> You're sorry for what? For because I because I threw shade on your cockamamie idea to do a podcast. We will get to that. Okay. We will get to that. No, the, you're right. You owe me plenty. I, you owe me plenty of apologies. I it's deeply, true. You are my Kirk, my boon companion. I deeply <laughs> apologize from the bottom of what's left of my heart. <laughs> because, and I'm going to tell you why. Do I know? I want to know why. Okay, tell good. me. Uh, because I, so I, I talked to Daniel Lee, yes. our guest this week, before the election, a little bit of, of time like ago. Like a day before. Mm-hmm. And it, what was it really? The day before? And, yeah. and, and I, went, I listened to it again t- tonight, which is whatever it is, the 12th of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, November. Where, um, anyway, and, and I listened to this and I realized how sorry I am, Kirk, that I <laughs> thought that doing a podcast was a bad idea. Because I just deeply love this man, and I love what he reminds me that we can all be if we were really better oh. than we are. Because <laughs> it's it's just I just loved listening to him, and I loved the conversation. I can't help but be carried by a measure of optimism, knowing that there are Daniel Lees out there. Uh, from the Levi Strauss Foundation, Daniel Lee, what? And by the way, a Let's Hear It listener. So, um, you know, <laughs> so I was going to say- everybody who's a Let's Hear It listener. I was going to say, Eric, I've got some bad news for you because if Daniel Lee is listening to this podcast, we are doing this for the rest of your life. We are going to be doing this if, if, uh-huh. if Daniel Lee's giving us time. But this is such a good conversation. It's so fun to go through it. And I say we should get straight to it and then let's come back and talk because there's a lot to talk about after this. Great. Daniel Lee and Let's Hear It. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this week is Daniel Lee, who's the executive director of the Levi Strauss Foundation, which is here in San Francisco, the Bay Area, and across the country, uh, a real presence in philanthropy. And I'm so excited, Daniel, to have a chance to, to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. A delight to be on. Let's hear it. You are also, among other things, just a fabulously fascinating fellow. Uh, if you don't mind me getting a little alliterative on you. Um, this, <laughs> <laughs> so in addition uh, to running the Levi Strauss Foundation, you serve on a whole bunch of boards of directors, including the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy, or even current or former. Uh, and NCRP is a fascinating participant in the conversation right now about equity in particular, Absolutely. but also the grant ma- grant makers for effective organizations, the Council on Foundations. I could go on and on and on. You are deep into the world of philanthropy, but you also have another side to yourself. Can you just talk a little bit about how you got from there to here? Yeah, that philanthropy stuff, I think, pales into comparison. I consider myself sort of an unlikely suspect for the field of philanthropy. If there is a common through line through my life, I think it's that of having, I guess, the, the awareness of what it means to 
simultaneously be an insider and an outsider at the same time. I grew up with an inexorable sense of, of being different. I think my family had no choice but to be pioneers. I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and literally went to Laura Ingalls Wilder Elementary School. Did you grow up <laughs> watching Little House on the Prairie? Yeah, well, and we looked very different from the other so-called pioneers, and I put that in quotes, you know, that were in that region. Our family holds the distinction of being the first, sorry, the second Korean family in the history of South Dakota. The nearest family was about 220 miles away in Pierre. Wow. You know, some things take a longer time to process in life. And for me, understanding what it meant to be plopped at the age of three growing up all the way through, th through high school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota as such an outsider, it's taken me to, you know, till my 40s to really get what it means to be a child of refugees. Both my parents grew up in North Korea and at the age of eight and 12, respectively, my mother and my father fled South just as the Korean War was breaking. They had to rebuild their lives from nothing. And I realized, you know, only after that I went back for my 20 year high school reunion. So I was 38 at the time. And I thought, what was it like for my parents to be, you know, moving to, to South Dakota? And it really dawned on me then that it was not just their first, not their second, but their third sort of unsettling, their third diaspora from Seoul to Philadelphia, right in the in the wake of the Immigration Act of 1965 to South Dakota. So I don't know, it's a it's a blistering pace of social change in both my parents' lifetimes and mine. And I just give my parents a lot of credit. Um, and I realize just as, as a child of refugees, it, it's a very different sense of urgency. There's a bias towards action and a sense of not taking tomorrow for granted. And that was something a bit odd and a bit out of odds with the, the, the surroundings around me. But now I've realized, you know, it's part of my my charging station in life and something I'm really grateful for um, in that perspective. And now that they're, they're older and, and they're, they're, they're speaking a lot more about their childhoods. And I realized that this, those decisions that they made and um, those qualities that they had, you know, even 20, 30 years before I was born have a deep impact on my life. Well, we're, we're going to talk about all the work that you are doing right now to take what you have experienced in your family's history and applying it towards helping other people feel like they belong. But mm. can, can you talk just a little, I mean, why did they go to South Dakota? What was that? What, did, what was that like? And how, how are you thinking about that experience now? Because as, as I said, you really are attaching that to so much of your philanthropy. It's interesting that my father came to the United States to do a residency in, in obstetrics and gynecology in 1965. And I didn't know my history, but you know, it was really the Immigration Act of 1965. And these were gains that were wrought directly because of the civil rights movement that allowed immigration um, in larger numbers. And that included a lot of scientists, doctors, academics from East Asia. So I'm a direct result of that, of, of gains you know, wrought through the civil rights movement. My mom and my dad were in Philadelphia, and actually they were about to go bankrupt. So my dad, you know, said, "I'm going to take the job that pays the most," uh. and it turns out it was teaching obstetrics and gynecology in South Dakota. <laughs> so that's the story. Yeah. <laughs> and what was it like to grow up in that, a place where you were really, really the other? Mm. You know, I there was a lot of love in my in my in my family. My family is also one of very deep faith, so. Our church, Hilltop Methodist Church, was a place where, you know, we felt like, like we belonged mm -hmm. and our whole family could really acculturate. Mm -hmm. I grew up on 10 acres of land with two horses, two dogs, and two cats. Um, <laughs> so we had a lot of space. <laughs> yeah, like kind of like Noah's Ark. Yeah. I was very much an introvert. And it was only later when I was maybe 22, 23, that I realized that our coping mechanisms in our family were, were actually sort of the classic Asian American coping mechanisms of people who are outsiders. And that's like blend in and bleach out, mm -hmm. um, bend over backwards to avoid conflict, um, be nice and be invisible. But um, at the same time, I, I really take from my, my upbringing in the Midwest, um, some of the, I think some of the social fabric and the value, people are nicer in the Midwest generally. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, I went back recently and just seeing, just going to Starbucks and hearing the, the chorus of hellos and goodbyes, I realized mm -hmm. that I learned a lot of my manners from, from, from growing up in South Dakota. It, it was very much about, I think, as I said before, that, that the inexorable sense of being different, but also, you know, understanding what, it's mean to, what it constantly means to be an insider and an outsider. And that's something my parents taught me. And obviously your church must have had, must have had some effect on you. You went to divinity school, didn't you? Yeah, well, 
I, I went to college at Princeton because it had the top physics department of the country. <laughs> and that was living out a stereotype. I mean, my dad said, you got to work five times harder to be included and recognized. And so I chose that because it had the top physics department, but I got weeded out, Eric, within the first six months. <laughs> and, you know, I did, I did the major a month thing, sort of, I, I explored, but I was drawn to religion probably for two reasons. One was um, Cornel West, mm-hmm. um, his gospel as a public intellectual. I was also drawn to the study of early Christianity. And I, I thought I would go and find these pure kernels of unadulterated truth. But I actually found that there was more diversity than ever in the early days of Christianity and came to study um, sort of the line between heresy and orthodoxy. I always found myself agreeing with the heretics. This is a this is a podcast about language. And yeah. it's interesting to think about the word um, orthodox. It means the straight line, literally. Huh. And the word heresy, the, the Greek, the Greek root, roots mean literally to choose. I was, it was also a moment at, at the age of 20, they say every 20 years or so, you get to start growing up all over again. I took that really literally. And that's when I came out as a gay man. I don't know, Cornel West, I just heard a speech recently and he said, you know, he, he quoted back this, this sense that in order to live, you have to really learn how to die. And I had to rebuild myself from the ground up uh, when I came out shedding of a life image and also peering into a periscope and having a really hard time seeing a productive future. This is a very different you know, environment than we, than, than we have right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I really sort of had a, a conversation with my maker and I said, if I get through this, I want to be of service. Huh. So I went on instinct and I, I went, I applied to Harvard Divinity School. It had a very expansive notion of what ministry meant. I knew I didn't want to get ordained. Um, even 30 years later, the Methodist Church doesn't have his act, act together. But I really found, I think, my spiritual moorings um, and my calling in where I really cut my teeth in social movements. My internship wasn't in a church. It was at, at a LGBT health center in Boston that had 60 employees. And just at the age of, you know, at the age of 22, to be thrust into, into that, that space, I was in a violence recovery program where I literally got no training. They, well, we, I got good training, actually, um, and was told to pick up the phone and counsel folks who had been victims of anti-LGBT um, hate crimes and also walk them through sort of the, the system, which, which might be reporting a violation or going to court. And out of that, I, I think the advocacy bug bit really hard. I moved to San Francisco at, at the age of 27 in search of a better life and somehow sort of knows my way into a job that I couldn't have conceived of growing up, which was working at an organization called the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. Uh, at the time, it was called that, and it's now called Outright. Mm-hmm. And I was the Asia Pacific um, regional officer. So it was really a dream job, um, working with around 300 um, nonprofits all around Asia Pacific in what was really a frontier area, looking at the human rights around sexual orientation, gender identity, and HIV and AIDS. And mind you, this was at a point when the UN was not recognizing sexual orientation, gender identity, HIV, AIDS as human rights issues. We were trying to lobby, you know, groups like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch at the early, in the early years to even recognize them. I guess to, to, to segue to philanthropy, after five years... Um, You're doing my job for me, so thank you. Okay, You're doing, okay, so, <laughs> that's where I'm going. <laughs> Go right Eric, ahead. I do a, I do a lot of public speaking, and I don't I, want to I'm, get actually, in your way. <laughs> I'm actually a much better moderator than a speaker, um, so <laughs> maybe that's my natural instinct. I was actually about to get laid off. It was five years that were tremendous, and the organization was moving to New York, and um, our development officer put a, a job announcement on my chair, and it was one of our funders, which was the Levi Strauss Foundation, huh. and they were looking for a program officer to be based in Asia, in the Singapore office, and I also did the roots thing. When uh-huh. I was in, in divinity school and spent two years and lived in Korea and really got to know my family, got to understand um, Korea. Um, I found my first boyfriend when I was in Korea, but part of me really wanted to live in Asia. So somehow talked my way into that interview. I'm never the first person to get chosen for, for these types of jobs. It's usually about three or four months down the line. <laughs> so I just want to say to all people who are, you know, who are looking and struggling, you know, I've, I, I've never been the first choice or the obvious choice. And I mean, I was even the last person to get in to my class in college off the wait list. I know there were, number, there were only four people and I was the last of four. <laughs> so 
underdogs unite. <laughs> I've always said I've never been remotely qualified for any job I've been hired for, but that's I think that's often a great thing because you you learn I don't want to hire someone who's already done it. I want someone who's reaching up into it. Now, corporate philanthropy is is a, actually speaking of it's kind of like a black black box to a lot of folks, uh, myself included, who worked in private philanthropy. And on the private philanthropy side, you think, oh, those corporate people are just in marketing, uh, and we don't really understand how that operates. I also understand that Levi Strauss is a, a slightly different company than a lot of other companies that run corporate philanthropy operations. Can you talk just a little bit about how you harmonize the values? Uh, that the company has with the social aspect work of what you're doing? They seem like they're maybe in harmony for Levi Strauss, but not necessarily always. Right. Well, here's where we get to the part of the Let's Hear It episode where we lower the drawbridges and drain the moat. <laughs> drain the moat. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, again, like I am not the, the typical face of someone when they think about philanthropic leadership. You know, that's part of sort of disabusing people of notions of what it's like to be in this field. Um, first of all, I just, just just to take a little bit of a step back, if it's all right, Eric. Yeah, so no, by all means, I, I no, went I, racing ahead. I, I, mean, I didn't no, 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 no. Like foundation CEOs, just I, I actually looked at some of the data here. They're actually 92% white, mm-hmm. only, only about 8% people of color. About 78% are over the age of 50. And if we also look at the level of trustees of foundations, the people that you know, we in our, in our roles as CEOs manage up to, as it were, um, 85% of those are white. So, you know, I, I have now been in my role for 12 years and, you know, I, I, I had a lot of deer in the headlights about who am I, who am I to be in a role like this? Um, and when you look at the demographics, it's really to no surprise. Um, and I was in my late thirties in that, in that type of role. So, but I, I, I was pulled aside by Colin Lakin, who is the head of Northern yeah. California grant makers. I know Colin. You know, and I, I, I really want to talk about voice since this is about foundation communications and, and nonprofit communications. And he just said, you know, you may not get this or understand this now, but you're going to get a lot of, you know, speaking engagements coming your way and invitations because you're a person of color, because you cut your teeth in movements. So it's time to respect your voice. And I was actually a really shy kid. And I, I sat through a lot of classes in college where 30, 40% of our grade was class participation, feeling really stupid while the people around me who had mostly gone to private schools had no problem fitting in. You know, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I listened to a lot of um, speeches and I really learned, I was really about, you know, respecting my voice. When you think about what we do in philanthropy, and I, I've had to do this to start with even explaining this to my parents, we don't own the money. The money's not ours. It comes from, you know, a, a donor. It could be a corporation. It could be a trust, it could be an individual, could come from a wide swath of the community. We don't do the work. It's the, it's the nonprofit to do that work. So I would submit that our core competency in philanthropy is I think the art of framing. It's the, the art of making the case for a specific cause to a specific audience and for a specific outcome. And since I worked in human rights advocacy, it's something that I found really resonates. You know, Justin Steele, who's a friend of mine who works at Google.org, and we were on a panel together, and I want to give him credit. He said 90% of the work in corporate philanthropy is translation because we're translating mm-hmm. in, the, in this lens of business and society, the issues and events of our day, figuring out what it means for us, figuring out, you know, this, this terrain of risk and opportunity. Let me get to your question now. You know, uh, <laughs> well, okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Um, But hold hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a second with Daniel Lee of the Levi Strauss Foundation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Daniel Lee of the Levi Strauss Foundation. And I cut you off in the middle of a really interesting thought about how foundations are in the job of framing, which, of course, warms the cockles of my teeny tiny little heart because I, I'm in communications. But I think you're right. We don't actually... Do the work. I've long said that people who work for foundations are like um, the 
kids on the playground who watch the other children play. But so keep going with with this really, really interesting thought that you were you were expressing. Well, I've I've really enjoyed listening to your to the previous episodes of Let's Hear It. Because when you listen to the, you know, the great people of our day, these the people like Desmond Mead and Saro J. Raman, they're superb framers. And I and and I feel like what makes for good communication and great influence, I feel like it's a combination of a few things. Number one, data, but I don't want to um, sort of overweight data, but it's important, especially in this age of in, in this age. I think another one is that that's really key is sort of social analysis and trends, placing the, the work that we're trying to advocate for in patterns and trends and in history. Um, I think a third key sort of skill of the day would be the ability to tell individual stories, to sort of figure out how these social trends um, result in lived lives and coloring in those faces. And then the last part, which I think is really the clincher, is really building that moral and political consensus around change, change agendas. And the really masterful speakers are able to elevate the values. They're able to ele- elevate to the sense of the greater we. And um, you know, just going back to what John Powell said about the American experiment, it's all about who's in the we. Mm-hmm. One thing I've also learned from sort of being in the human rights world, it's, it's, it's one thing for me, for example, to be empowered as someone who is, who is um, LGBTQ+. Uh, it's another to be a narrator to help project what, where our society needs to go. Those folks, I think, are really masterful. Desmond Mead, when you listen to him, he talks about this work. He's the mastermind behind Amendment 4 and the Florida Restoration Rights Coalition, but he speaks so movingly about the value of love, yeah. about redemption and forgiveness. And in terms of the greater we, he also says, look at the story of my life. I stood in front of a train right. wondering if, you know, where my life would be. And now I'm in the time 100. And he's telling everyone in the audience, you have that possibility. So I, I feel the same way as someone who, you know, a kid who grew up going to Laura Wilder as a Korean queer, uh, who always felt like an outsider being in philanthropy. Bob Haas, who is the CEO of Levi Strauss and Company, and he was the chair of of, our, of the Levi Strauss Foundation until he retired for 24 years. And he's actually the great great grand nephew of Levi Strauss. You know, he essentially hired me, and this was 12 years ago. And I sat in his office, and the first time I sat in it, I was just blinded by the view of the bay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a great view, and he just said, "Don't get comfortable in this role." He said, "Change comes from the margins. Don't forget where you came from." Um, and he said, if there's a metaphor for the Levi Strauss Foundation, I look at it as jazz, not symphony. Um, and it was a way of saying you belong and, and to feel comfortable, but not too comfortable. You know, when, I, when you look back at those trends, I'm the, fourth, I'm the fourth executive director in the row who's a person of color. So this is intentional and an intentional sort of sense that people closest to the change and closest to the issues that we want to create ought to be driving that. I'd like to pull all these threads together because it's your story is so interesting, your background, your approach, your perspective. And now all of a sudden, flash forward to today, 2020, you are the executive director of Levi Strauss Foundation, which is which has a voice. You have a platform. Uh, you have lots to say. And you have a company that has articulated a set of values that I would say are consistent with your own experience in, in many ways. How do you take all those pieces and put them together into a philanthropic strategy? And how do you, I mean, what does that work actually become after you've pulled all these pieces together? Well, I think first I, I want to rewind and go back to your question about corporate philanthropy because I knew going in that looking at all the sectors of philanthropy, um, corporate philanthropy is sort of seen as the bottom rung of the ladder in philanthropy. It has a bit of a bad rap. So I, I feel like what we aspire to do is to not be that. It's often seen as the PR wing right. of companies. You know, a lot of talk and not a lot of action. That was, that was always my impression, by the way. So, you know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I just, you know, it's important to name these. And a lot of foundations in, in, in the corporate sector um, focus on issues that are proximate to their industry where there are, frankly, a lot of problematic practices. So right. a lot of mining and extractive companies focus on the environment. <laughs> Beverage companies focus on water. Pharma talks about health and funds health. Financial services um, companies focus on asset building. So there's a lot of raised eyebrows and sometimes you know challenges around receipt of those funds. 
We talk a lot about multiple bottom lines, environmental, social, and economic. But um, you know, having looked at this field for now two decades almost, the critics are saying it's often about saving money or about reducing harm. And when it comes to the social good, it's rare I find that those outputs um, or those results for corporate philanthropy are are scrutinized or brought to scrutiny by thought leaders in the community to say, is this, you know, in, the, in a sniff test, is this is this pioneering or is, or is this meh? And the last thing is, you know, there's there's the challenge is, is also that funding comes from largely from profits of the prior year. And this is what I call the dilemma of churn. So one year profits can be comfortable, but, it, but the next year, and this is a year like this year, it could be zero. So a lot of folks that I know in, in, um, in corporate philanthropy, they have the desire to drive longer term projects um, longer-term initiatives, but the very structure of corporate philanthropy makes that challenging because it makes funding less sort of predictive and predictable. Another sort of bad rap is that it's seen as sort of advancing the pet projects of executives, and it's borne out by McKinsey that the, it was number one the list in the list of um, considerations for guiding philanthropic priorities, the interests of CEOs and board members. That was 45% saying yes. And then finally, you know, we're in this meaning world right now of the gospel of innovation. You can't escape it, especially in the corporate world. And there's no faulting innovation in terms of creativity, in terms of disruption, in terms of boldness and fearlessness. But I think the dark underbelly is that it privileges um, what is new and disruptive over what is tried and true. By average, we often see corporate initiatives sunrising and sunsetting within a two or year time two or three year time frame and it's we all know that it's foolhardy to think that we can drive durable social change in that in that cycle of time there's nothing trider and truer than a pair of jeans that 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 i'm wearing with a a hundred and some odd year design (laughs) so we we are a hundred and and again patience is i think uh an underrated virtue in, in philanthropy and in corporate philanthropy that's definitely you know the case and we have a 168-year legacy as a company, and in many ways, um, I think that gives us the imprimatur um, to get in early and stay the course. And really proud that we've stayed in a few lanes for at least three decades at a time. And to get down to sort of what we fund, we've been in three areas. And one is the, the, the response to HIV and AIDS. Um, this emerged because one of our values as a company is empathy because it, it emerged, HIV and AIDS emerged as, a, as an issue among our employees as early as 1982. And our company arguably was the first to respond and have the first um, employee education. And we were actually the first to provide um, a grant in the fight against HIV and AIDS. And now over $75 million later, we're still in that fight. Um, it's the most stigmatized medical condition in human history. And we're out there to fund the, the human rights response. And we're not afraid to, to stand with those who face incredible stigma and discrimination. The second area is in the rights and the well-being of the people who make our products, the makers. We've long had a history of of bringing NGOs on factory floors, both in the American South when we owned and operated factories, um, and now in our contracted supply chain. And we really believe in the power of, of NGOs to um, to add a lot of value that, and understand that what's good for workers is also good for business. And we've we've supported initiatives that focus on reproductive health, hygiene, um, life skills, and even understand helping workers understand their rights under the law and also um, supporting some access to justice work. And the third area is where we really stand out contrarians, um, social justice. We've had a long history of supporting um, social movements. And it, for us, it's really natural being in the cradle of innovation, I think, for social movements as well as technology in the San Francisco Bay Area. Corporations and social movements have been considered unlikely bedfellows. And we really want to counter that notion, especially in this day and age. I think um, politics have been seen as this terrain of risk for, for, for a very long time. You know, we really see it natural to, to weigh in on the issues that we care about, um, but also pair that with investments in the community. It's really a no-brainer when we think when we, for, for us as a company that wants to have an impact on the world. And it sounds to me like that's that you have these intrinsic values, the values that have passed down from the founders and that work their way through the family that is still engaged in the company after all these years, that 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I may be beyond something, which is that you have a set of values and you pursue those values and those values exist regardless or outside of the business model. So you, you, my guess is that you don't think through your philanthropy and say, okay, how, how many pairs of jeans are we going to sell as a result of this, but that you do what's right and let the chips fall where they will. Is that is that too blithe a statement? We really believe in what we call disinterested philanthropy. And uh, with so much business interest inter- interlaced in philanthropy, and often in, a, in such an internal way that it doesn't really amount to, 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 to more than met to outside observers. You know, when I, when I speak in front of a room of people in the corporate sector saying we've been in the fight against HIV AIDS for 38 years, that's enough to get applause. Uh, you know, that, it ought to be a no brainer, <laughs> you know, so, but- Because um, it's unusual. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, I, right. let's, let's get back to communication. I, I feel that it's, it's important um, there, we only have, you know, six positions at the Levi Strauss Foundation, and we are in many ways like a, I call it sort of a hub of influence between social movements, um, our employees, our company, its leadership, our board of directors, and the key to that, I believe, is being like really exemplary communicators, and the ability to make a values-based argument is one of the skills of the day, and it's, I don't want that to be a dying art. And a lot of folks, you know, they say, um, you know, we, we talk about values, but we don't name our values and articulate them. So uh, if you will, you know, our, our, our values at the Levi Strauss Foundation and Levi Strauss and Company are originality, empathy, integrity, and courage. So, you know, originality in the projected onto community gives us the imprimatur to be first, being fearless in where others fear to tread. Empathy guides us you know, and we can say it, it guides us to walk in other shoes, but in our philanthropy, it guides us to support those um, who are most marginal in society and to, to, to really stand with the underdogs. And it really fits, I think, the character of our brand. The third value, integrity, really guides us to do what very few corporations do, um, which is systemic change. Um, it's intervening in systems and really supporting those who are using a full toolkit of social change, legal advocacy, poly, policy advocacy, narrative change, culture change, community organizing, um, and to chip away at the long term. And then finally, courage, which I think speaks for itself. We're, we're also, I mean, part of our, our rich trove of, of, of heritage is also, I think, our iconography that, you know, Levi's, Levi Strauss was a pioneer, so we, we really like to think of our, our grantees as pioneers, as people who take courageous risks. It's also the, the Levi's brand, it's, it's, its spirit is about authentic self-expression. Um, you know, it's, we're, it's, it's not lost on us that we're a symbol of, of freedom and democracy all around the world. And we also know that as an American icon, what we say about America matters, going back to what John Powell said, this it is a it is a you know a process of contention about who's in the we and we believe we have something to say about standing for an America that reflects these values. Well, I mean it it really shows I I admire the work that you're doing in just this um, a minute or so that we have left. Well, um where do you where do you go from here? Uh, obviously you're building something. You've been at Levi Strauss for quite some time. What uh, how does how do you move forward? How do you make decisions about what to do next? What, what's kind of exciting about what's in the future? Understanding that we are living in, as they say, challenging times. Wow, the time has just flown by. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I look at the, back, the backdrop um, because this is, you know, the most disruptive era that, that most of us have lived through. But um, the, the calculus between business and politics is rapidly shifting. And there's a lot at stake here. Um, politics was not long ago considered taboo, completely taboo um, in the corporate world. But today we find that it's an, an inescapable part of the business conversation, um, spilling over from the public sector. You know, in the face of gridlock in the public sector and in action by governments, we're seeing that companies are, are actually seizing on an opportunity to lead the charge around unaddressed issues. And we're, we're finding that companies are making a meaningful difference around gun safety, around civil rights and inclusion, the issue of immigration. And we find that you know this is this is the moment where companies can be a moral compass. We're in this moment where we're we're confronting now um, legacies of anti-blackness and systemic racism. This is a moment for no sector just to sort of stand by the sidelines. Um, we believe that it's you know we hope that we can help really create a new operating system where companies use their voice, 
their influence and their capital, where we where we pair our statements and we've we've made statements for gun safety, around immigration, around LGBT rights, around um, women's health and social justice. Um, but it's it's it really ought to be a no brainer to pair these with um, with investments in the community. In this moment, we've seen a lot of companies give um, one off donations um, around racial justice, and it's really great that you know a certain um, swath of organizations have benefited from this. But um, I think the next challenge is understanding that this is a long game, and that this is a there's no greater moment or opportunity for companies to join in the the charge around systemic change, which means standing beside movement leaders, standing beside movements. We it's also really important that those with access to global brands and platforms open those up. And I'm I'm really proud that we're using the Levi's Instagram channel to really sort of open it up so that you know in this in this space where the world of 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 business meets the world of politics and the world of culture, our channels can help social movements move closer to the center of culture. And we've had um, Desmond Mead, who's you know he's been a guest in your show, on our Instagram live feed with Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and there's huh. over fifty thousand views on that. And you know Alicia Garza and 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 Ijen Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Black Lives Matter, they spoke about the the importance of voting. We believe it's a moment where it's time to put it on the line and, you know, to really, you know, as far as who we stand with, you know, we're really making a stand as far as what democracy means and whose voices count. You know, while we're on the, the, the eve of the most important election in our lifetimes, um, this importance of voting and the importance of making sure that every vote is heard. Um, we, we've invested $2.6 million um, to ensure that the voices of all people, but especially those who've been dispossessed, um, people of color, and especially the South and the West, will be heard. It's about being a moral compass and stepping up in a new way. It's great to hear that. I, I love that you're doing it. I'm thrilled that you, in particular, are doing it, given so much that you have to offer and to bring to this conversation. And I just am grateful that you were happy to spend the time with us today. Daniel, it's been a really, really, really wonderful conversation. Really honored to be on, on your show. Thanks so much. Well, thank you again, Daniel Lee, Executive Director of the Levi Strauss Foundation. And we're back. Mr. Brown. So I love that this happened right before the election. And this this is a voice I really needed to hear. I didn't even realize how much I needed to hear this voice until I started hearing Daniel talk, tell his story. Um, a good Midwesterner, by the way, it raised in uh, yes. South Dakota, next door to my home state of Iowa. Uh, so tell me about the inclination to invite Daniel onto the podcast, because he's such a this is so timely, Eric, the conversation, the tenor of the discussion. It's just it was it was like taking it, it was like medicine, the right kind of medicine. It's like an antidote to whatever <laughs> chaos is going on. Good medicine. Yes. Don't you think? I do, I do. I have to say that, well, for for one thing, I have a kind of a, a a tenuous connection to the Levi Strauss company in that I worked with the San Francisco Foundation, and one of the board members is Bob Friedman, who is a member of the Haas family, which helped to found the Levi Strauss company. And Bob okay. Friedman is one of the most extraordinary beautiful human beings on the planet mm. and that connection with the company shines through in the interview with Daniel because mm. you get this sense that this is an institution with purpose and okay on the one hand they make jeans <laughs> right they make jeans uh, the jeans that I happen to be wearing jeans that I love but they're jeans and yet when Daniel talks about the institution that has helped to advance ideas and commitments and a connection to the community and all these other things, you start to see how a company can make a difference and how an organization or an institution or any other entity that you can think of can actually turn its existence into purpose. And that's what Bob Friedman represents to me. And then mm. that is embodied in Daniel, this extraordinarily beautiful human being. 
<laughs> and and it works its way back to jeans and the 49ers <laughs> and <laughs> you know <laughs> it so they, they 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 i always my definition for a brand is the feeling you get when you think of it <laughs> whatever it mm. is mm. and and that's one of these kind of ephemeral expressions of what how you can take anything and turn it into meaning and purpose and and daniel represents that and bob friedman represents that and so that's my that's my take on all of on on, and then that becomes what corporate philanthropy corporate philanthropy becomes just philanthropy because here's our organization and the people who started it or the people who embody it and what we want to do with our presence in a community or in a marketplace or anything else well and clearly an investment in changing things up by virtue of having Daniel in the role. You know, I was thinking about all the many aspects of his story that are so part of how he approaches the work. And I, I hope that we can actually do some of the origin story retelling. You know, he went to Laura Ingle. Wilder's school. I could hear the cockles of your heart warming yeah, as he was talking I mean, about that. Well, but, you know, but then, then he started laying out. I was thinking about all the different ways that um, a person like Daniel gets to be disruptive in the role. And I was trying to figure out which of these things are most important. And then he starts going through this litany of data related to foundation CEOs. You know, 92% are white. 78% are over the age of 50. Uh, trustees tend to be 85% white. And here's, you know, Daniel coming in, um, you know, w- w- with with a background from Korea. You know, he's, he's you know, as he describes himself, he's queer. But he's also in his late 30s. And, and I was just thinking about the challenge for him of settling into this role. And then he had so many good things for us to think about. And by the way, I... <laughs> When he gave you back your lower the drawbridge and drain the moat. <laughs> Finally, like, someone okay. who got the joke. I love it. This, yeah, yeah, I was like, just so, so insightful. But then he started talking about voice and he started talking about respecting your voice. And he kept bringing you back, by the way. This is your clever little device. Pick a, pick a guest who's better at being the host than you are. Pick a guest who could just drive the entire conversation. But he kept bringing you back to the values of this podcast and talking about voice and language and respecting your voice. And it really felt to me that as a person, but as a professional too, Daniel's going through this formative process of learning who he is, how he can contribute, where services. He's done some deep work to find out what that's about. And he's bringing all that through into the work that he's doing at, at, at the foundation. I mean, is that a fair... Is that a fair summation of some of what we heard from him? Yeah, totally. And I mean, when was the last uh, executive director of a corporate foundation who quotes John Powell, (laughs) not once, not twice, maybe three or four times, who understands that I just, you, that makes me happy. And I'm, it was just such a fun, it was just so cool to talk with him. What a cool thing. And actually, as it happens, he lives down the hill. We're, we're, we oh, live about a fifteen minute walk from each other, and we can't wait when the when the world gets better to maybe get have coffee or something like that. Well, and then you know what I also loved was how he was pulling together the different pieces of the puzzle for how philanthropy works. And yeah, you know he was talking about you know what philanthropy isn't. You don't own the money. You don't right. do the work. What do you think about his take, though? The core competencies, the art of framing. And again, all of I'm just like here we are, the master's class. And by the way, I do accept your apology, and it's true. We are on a journey of discovery, okay. and we are hearing Let's these tremendous people away, talk Kurt. about it. This once again, this is a master's <laughs> class. But what do you think? You know, his his perspective, the core competencies, the art of framing. You make the case for a cause, for a specific audience, for an outcome. I, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, what did you think about that? Well, obviously, as people, as you and I, who are believe that communications matters, uh, <laughs> it was music to my little ears. It, it's true. So much of, all right, we, oh, by the by, it, as it is November 12th, and we just came through <laughs> this mm-hmm. hellacious experience of an election in which, you know, framing can be done for good or evil. 
Yeah. And we have seen, I, I think we've seen expressions of both. And it is also true that being able to have clarity about who you are, what, why you matter or what your thing matters and where you're trying to go is coin of the realm. And whereas some people do it for evil purposes and, and succeed, others like Daniel and a lot of other organizations and people that we, whom we've spoken to are, are really trying to better connect with their audiences or constituents or you know larger groups of, of people to, to do things for the right reasons. And that's why we have to be good at it. I mean, I think mm. that we just came through this experience understanding why it matters and and I was and it's just so cool that that Daniel and a, a company like Levi's they 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 see their organization and their brand in one way but they also know that it is really important to just do the right thing mm -hmm. well you know it's funny when he talks about creating a new operating system where companies use their voice they use their influence and their capital to advance change um, and, you know, he talks about the kind of change that they're describing, you know, dealing with systemic racism, you know, and, and he describes the values that inform that, you know, for them, originality, empathy, integrity, courage. When, when you're hearing that from a company that's been around for 168 years, <laughs> it's got a little different resonance, yeah, doesn't I mean, it? <laughs> well, it does. It really does. Yeah. I mean, they could back it up. <laughs> but it, I, I think it's also true that uh, we all, I mean, individually and, and organizations and institutions, we, we all have the opportunity to tell a story through our work and through the thing, whether, whether it's the product that you make if you're a company or whether it is the kind of the ideals or the values that formed your organization, whether it's a foundation or a nonprofit, that, that add up to something that makes sense. And like I said before, you know, these are genes, and somehow it makes sense that mm -hmm. what Daniel is saying rings true for the organization that he represents. And that's kind of cool. I, I, that's magical stuff because mm -hmm. you can't draw a straight line to it. But that is amazingly cool. And so anyone who's out there listening saying, oh, how, how can we continue to develop the voice of our organization or how can we uh, build, uh, you know, build off our history or our shared values to something bigger that's how and you know it's a little magical but it's also there and it makes sense and you you kind of nod your head and go yeah i actually understand what he's talking about well and before we um i don't want to leave this without actually reflecting back to on part of the personal journey that daniel shares and in something he said almost in passing right up front that i just want to pause a little bit he was a member of the second Korean family in mm -hmm. South Dakota. <laughs> and uh, and then he described what that meant. We're on a 10-acre farm. They had two of everything. Right. <laughs> you know, they had the two yeah. I was going to say to you, I was going to say to you, so Eric, if I described to you my 10-acre farm, my two horses, what's the price tag you assigned to that, you know, in the Bay Area? You know what I mean? This is, this is the <laughs> magic. Acres of, in the Bay Area? Yeah. $10 million. Yeah, this, yeah, this is the magic of living in the Midwest. But but I just think that, you know, some one of the benefits of having been able to do a number of these episodes now and just kind of hear these different stories, some of the themes that come out, you know, this um this feeling he describes, you know, being in this family, you know, in, in, in South Dakota, that but also um his 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 own process like the the faith journey he described he went to divinity school you know he had to yeah. do some deep reflection and just that mix of intelligence and humility that kind of comes out of that crucible of experience um but i was i was wondering we're hearing a lot of people on our podcast and this was not by design but a lot of people on our podcast that come the kirk from nothing faith. was by design well <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what was my is what I said. Is what I said. Uh, this was going to be really easy and simple. Just going to take any of your time. That was that was by design. It was all lies. It was all lies. <laughs> but but do you think it's just a coincidence that so many of our guests have actually come from this background and training in divinity school and from different faith experiences? Because that has been something that's been a surprise to me that we've heard about that so often on this podcast. Is it a coincidence? Yes, it is. No. You think so? <laughs> totally ready. I don't know. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> it's a good question. You know, when anyone ever says it's a good question, it's because they don't know the answer. But uh, 
I don't know. But I do. What I do think is important is that I, I think people who come, you know, who, who are willing to have a conversation with us have a purpose, and and maybe that's the underlying value of the folks who go to divinity school, but or or not. But they have a purpose. There's a meaning, some kind of organization about how they see the world and what they want to achieve. And that part, I totally, I totally get. I think it's purpose. I think it's a, it's a willingness and a desire to think deeply and reflect deeply. And I also think it's systems, you know, systems thinking and, and, and you hear it in, in Daniel describing the systemic work that they're doing. And by the way, the last thing, can I say, they've been in the fight against HIV AIDS for 38 years. And, you know, if you've grown up with that issue being front and center and something that was not marginalized and not stigmatized the way that Dan was describing, you may not appreciate how significant it would be for a company anywhere in the world. And of course, Levi's is right here in San Francisco, but just how significant it would be for a company to say through their foundation, hey, we're going to invest there. You know, we're going to make a statement there and make a stand there. And you know, that's, that's courage. That's yeah. that courage. And I, they've stuck I with hear. it too, which is the yeah. other part. Absolutely. Well, Kirk, happy 49th anniversary. <laughs> I think we just did our 49th episode. Against all odds, Daniel Lee, this is wow. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better and more timely voice for episode 49. Oh, you know, against yeah. all odds, Daniel, man, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I and, agree. Co- you know, coming out of the election, we we all went through the ringer, and yet another person who gives me so much hope that the yeah. future is bright. And there are so many Daniel Lees out there doing the work, yeah, thank goodness. right? And we got to hear from him. So we'll have a fiftieth episode, and then we're also planning to drop a little bit of a piece of writing about oh, fifty episodes. We are. And who's going to write this inbox. piece of writing, Kirk? It's in your inbox. It's in your <laughs> inbox. Waiting for you to turn it around. I can't wait. But um, man, this is great. Daniel Lee, Levi Strauss Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Thank you so much for bringing that conversation to us. What a treat. That was fun. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Let's hear it. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today, or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs>